America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. In today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the island nation of Japan, a close U.S. ally and key partner in economic development and security in East Asia. Our guest is Minister Konotaro. A graduate of Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, Minister Kono has served eight terms in the Japanese House of Representatives. He has held a range of ministerial positions, from chairman of the National Public Safety Commission to foreign minister and defense minister. He has seen the transition between 11 governments as an elected official. Last month, new Prime Minister Suga Yoshihide tapped Kono to oversee administrative reform and digital transformation as the Minister for Administrative, Regulatory, and Civil Service Reform. The Japanese nation reflects a civilization with prehistoric roots. In the late 3rd century, the tribes that occupied the Japanese archipelago loosely unified to form the imperial dynasty that reigns over Japan to this day. By the late 12th century, shoguns, political military leaders of noble caste, assumed de facto power over the country. Centuries that followed were filled with civil wars between warlords, or daimyos, until the Tokugawa shogunate consolidated power in 1600. The Tokugawa shogunate maintained control until the Meiji Restoration of 1868 restored practical imperial rule to Japan, and ended Japan's two-and-a-half-century isolation from the world. The return of imperial rule saw the end of trade isolation with the arrival of the Western black ships and a period of modernization. Imperial Japan fought wars against the late Qin Dynasty and Russia, annexed the Korean Peninsula and Taiwan, and invaded Manchuria in 1931 in what was a precursor to the global conflict of World War II. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese military bombed Pearl Harbor assuming that the United States would not make the sacrifices necessary to penetrate the inner island chain and threaten Japan directly. That resulting miscalculation resulted in the Pacific War, a war that was extremely costly to America, its allies, and the Japanese. A war that ended with the United States dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945. The day after the war ended, the United States extended and Japan accepted a hand of friendship. Japan grew into a thriving democracy. It adopted its current constitution in 1947 and experienced such rapid economic recovery that it was deemed the Japanese miracle. The U.S.-Japan alliance also flourished into a miracle of history, in the words of former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo. Today, the United States' largest overseas military presence is in Japan, and Japan is the United States' fourth-largest trade partner. We talked to Minister Kono at a time of increasing aggressive actions by the Chinese Communist Party, a growing threat of a potential nuclear-armed North Korea, 
and the emergence of new arenas of competition in space, cyberspace, and disruptive dual-use technologies. A strong U.S.-Japan alliance based on our common commitment to preserve peace, promote prosperity, and advance democratic principles in the face of those threats is more important than ever. Kono-san, konnichiwa. Welcome Hi. to Battlegrounds. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, it's, it's, it's great to see you. Hey, let, let me begin by saying what an honor it was to serve uh, alongside you, as well as our, our friend, a former Japan National Security Advisor, Yachi Shitaro, and, and of course, mm-hmm. Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, an, an extraordinary leader uh, who's just resigned after the longest tenure in Japanese history as Prime Minister. Thank you for taking time to join us during what I know is a very busy time for you and, and all Japanese leaders. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be on this program. And uh, it has been so nice working with you as a defense minister. So thank you very much. Kurosan, thank you. And your Prime Minister Abe once described our alliance as a miracle. What struck me in my time as National Security Advisor was how closely aligned we were on on critical challenges from the increasing aggression of the Chinese Communist Party to the growing threat from North Korea. I I often thought, however, that we cannot take our close relationship for granted. So, so Mr. Kono, you've served in in government since 1996, and you've witnessed many transitions in governments on, on both sides of the Pacific. And I wonder if you might share your observations about how the the Japan-U.S. relationship has evolved and your assessment of the alliance today from your unique perspectives as, as Ministry, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Defense, and now Minister for Administrative Reform and Regulatory Reform. Thank you. Well, since I came to the parliament for the first time in 96, I think Japan-U.S. alliance went through uh, some changes uh, during the uh, Democratic Party uh, of Japan government, I think alliance went a little uh, rocky, but uh, since Prime Minister Abe came back a second time, I think he has taken strong leadership to make the alliance stronger than ever. I could say the alliance is really stronger than ever, and uh, we can now talk to each other very frankly, and uh, whatever whatever we say, uh, the alliance still remains strong. So uh, at uh, leaders level, foreign ministers level, or defense ministers level, uh, we can say whatever we need to say to our friends, and we can still make the alliance strong. And uh, I think it is very important as we try to make free and open uh, Indo-Pacific vision, uh, you know, realize uh, things. So I'm very happy that I have been able to serve as a foreign minister and defense minister at the uh, height of this uh, alliance. And we, we will uh, make alliance stronger uh, to the future. Kurosan, since we were last together in Tokyo at, at the end of, of 2019, Our two nations and the world have been through quite a bit in in 2020. Mm -hmm. It's it's been a tough Mm -hmm. year and that we'll surely remember as as infamous. Uh, You know, Prime 
Prime Minister Suga Suga-san has said that you know, he plans to carry forward Minister Abe's policies. So, in your view, what does the election of, of Suga-san to the prime ministership mean for the future of, of our relationship? And as you look as you look at the U.S. Uh, presidential election that's ongoing now, what advice would you give uh, whoever's sworn in to the U.S. presidency on January twentieth of next year? Well. Uh, Prime Minister Arbe was longest serving uh, Prime Minister in our history. But uh, Suga-san uh, was uh, also the longest serving Chief Cabinet Secretary uh, sitting in the Prime Minister's office for nearly eight years in that capacity. And uh, he has he has been working with Prime Minister Abe hand in hand. When I was a foreign minister, when I was a defense minister, I did my briefing to Prime Minister and uh, did my briefing to the Chief Cabinet Secretary. So Suga-san is very uh, well aware of the uh, development in uh, security field and uh, foreign affairs field. So he, he knows what Prime Minister Abe was trying to do, and he knows everything about uh, conversation between Prime Minister Abe and President Trump. So he will continue this momentum. The only thing that uh, uh, the Prime Minister Abe did and the Sugasa may not be able to do, I'm not sure if Sugasan is a golfer or not. So he may not be able to play golf with President Trump as Prime Minister Abe did. But uh, other than that, I think he will continue to carry the torch forward. So uh, whoever uh, going to sit in the White House uh, next year, uh, he doesn't have to worry about uh, you know, his ally in East Asia. We will continue to be the most important ally in Asia to the United States. And uh, this alliance between Japan and the US will continue to be uh, public good uh, to keep the stability and peace of Asia. Well, Konosan, I think all of us look forward to the end of 2020 and a new year. I know I know you're looking forward to the, to the Olympics uh, in Japan mm-hmm. as well. So. So we, we hope that we've kind of hit bottom here, to, so to speak, and, and uh, uh, for, for both of our countries and the world, and, and it will have a, a wonderful year next year together. You know, I, I think one of the most important aspects of, of Prime Minister Abe's leadership, and I think what seems is going to be a very strong element of continuity in, in the U.S.-Japan relationship, is Prime Minister Abe's vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific region. And could you describe that uh, to, to our viewers? What is that vision? And maybe share your assessment of, of what we've accomplished so far in, in, in realizing that vision mm-hmm. and what more that we need to do. I, I know there was just a, the ministerial meeting, uh, for example, in Tokyo of the Quad, uh, which is the US, Japan, uh, Australia, and, and India. And it, and it seems as if there is momentum building uh, behind this idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific. Mm-hmm. Well, we used to talk about uh, Pacific, uh, the Pacific regions, but Prime Minister Abe was expanding this uh, vision, uh, including 
ASEAN countries, India, and to uh, Middle East, to the Eastern coast of Africa. So he was proposing the vision of free and open Indo-Pacific, meaning free and open uh, maritime order, peace and stability in this in Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. In order to make uh, Indo-Pacific region free and open, uh, we were trying to achieve maritime safety in the region. Uh, we need to work on uh, capacity building uh, with uh, so many countries in the region, uh, provide humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, uh, counter-terrorism capability, and all those things. We have been working very closely with US, Japan, Australia, Canada, and other like-minded country uh, to do the capacity building to many countries in Asia and Africa. And also we are trying to promote the so-called quality infrastructure. Sometimes uh, you borrow money and uh, you end up not being able to pay back. And uh, some country lost a very important infrastructure to some other country. Some other country lend the money and control the infra infrastructure later on. So we are trying to avoid that happening in the region. So we have been working very closely with many countries in this region and uh, Quad, US, Japan, Australia, and India are now uh, the leader of the four country meeting and the foreign minister just met in Tokyo. So we are trying to institutionalize this uh, quad meeting to keep the uh, free and open Indo-Pacific. And this vision is open to anybody, any country, any country can uh, be welcome to join us to promote this region. I mean, in Indo-Pacific, more than half of the population on this planet are living uh, in this region. And uh, this is going to be the center of the economic growth into at least uh, first half of the 21st century. So it is very important to keep the region free and open. Well, Kunsan, I think it's it's tough to argue with that, right? But we are we are up against, uh, I think, a, a, a rival, uh, especially the, you know, in the form of the Chinese Communist Party and its policies. So, a free and open Indo-Pacific means countries can make their own choices. There, there, there are relationships of, of of equal and reciprocal treatment. But what we see now with the Chinese Communist Party, I think, is particularly disturbing. The COVID nineteen pandemic, the way that was handled such that it couldn't be contained locally based on the deception of the party. And then what we've seen is really adding insult to injury you know, with this wolf warrior diplomacy aimed at Europe and the United States. We've seen in the midst of the pandemic, massive cyber attacks against our medical research facilities and our pharmaceutical companies. And then, and then of course, you have the, the national security law, the repression of human freedom in Hong Kong. A big contrast to free and open Indo-Pacific is, is the effort by the, by the People's Liberation Army and the Chinese Communist Party 
to really affect what would be the, the largest land grab, so to speak, in history in the South China Sea if they were to succeed. A lot of threats toward Taiwan and what Japan has seen is in increasing aggression in the Senkakus uh, as well. Uh, I mean, not even to mention what we've seen the party do in the midst of the pandemic, extending extending and, and tightening uh, its exclusive grip on power internally. Uh, th this campaign of, I think it's fair to call it, cultural genocide in, in Xinjiang, for example. So, I, I, of course, you know, the Free and Open Open is a great vision, but China, China's flip to that is one belt, one road, and an effort to create these servile relationships with countries in the region. What's your assessment? How, how well, how do you see the the threat from an increasingly aggressive Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping, and and, and how well do you think we're doing uh, in countering th this this aggressive approach uh, that, that uh, we've seen from China? Well, when we invited China to WTO, uh, we were hoping that China may have a different political system. China could be a good player or good partner uh, in this uh, global forum. Um, but our, what happened is for the last 30 years, Chinese defense spending has increased 44-fold. And the uh, last 10 years, their defense spending doubled, more than doubled. So now their defense spending is four times as much as what Japan uh, pays on defense. As the result of it, as a result of it, uh, they China now has more than one thousand uh, fighter, fourth generation and fifth generation fighter jet, whereas our air self defense force has just about the three hundred. China, Chinese Navy has uh, uh, more than uh, doubled the number of uh, our maritime self-defense force submarine. So as economy grows, uh, any country try to grow their military power. That's, that's what's been happening in the history, uh, you know. But uh, what do we see in the midst of COVID-19? I was defense minister in the first half of this year, and uh, we experienced so many Chinese military aircraft approaching our airspace. So self-defense force uh, fighter jet had to scramble against the Chinese airplane uh, 150 times in the first 90 days, meaning more than almost twice a day, our self-defense force aircraft scrambled against the Chinese airplanes. And uh, that was rare even during the height of Cold War. So what we are expressing, ex experiencing is a pressure from China, not only to the airspace, their government ship with guns, uh, coming into our territorial water near Senkaku Island. And often they stay there quite long time. And as you said, we experience uh, their land grab in uh, South China Sea. And uh, 
what's happening in Hong Kong, well, they have international uh, promise to keep the Hong Kong system for quite some time, but uh, they are trying to destroy the system in Hong Kong. So we have to, well, we have to question what their intentions are. And uh, we really need to work closely with uh, like-minded country to check their military expansion. Um, I was talking about quality infrastructure before. China has been lending money to countries like Sri Lanka or Maldives or Laos or other countries. But oftentimes they overlend the money and uh, countries like Sri Lanka was not able to pay back the loan. So they were trying to develop the port of Hambantota but uh, they realized they are not able to pay back the loan. So China came in, took the control of the, that very port for next 99 years. Same thing is happening to a couple of islands in Maldives or the uh, electricity grid in Laos. So we need to be very careful uh, about uh, China's money lending policy. So in order for us to check the, those Chinese behavior, we have to argue based on the international rules. And uh, what, I, what I'm re really regretting is that our, in the United States, former President, President Obama proposed the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was not just a trade deals. It was a new forum to create the rules for the Indo-Pacific on not just the trade, investment, environment, labor, and all those rulemaking body. And uh, we were ready to join TPP. Yes, there was a political cost to pay domestically, but Prime Minister Abe decided it is very important. So LDP lost some seats in the parliament because of the TPP, but we decided to join. And as we completed the negotiation, uh, United States left TPP. Uh, we created the CPTPP after US has left the uh, system but we are hoping that one day United States will come back to TPP so that we can make it a rulemaking body for entire Indo-Pacific. Even the United Kingdom is willing to join TPP and other countries in Asia and the region are trying to join TPP. So if US could come back to it, I think we can make that as a very good uh, future route making body for Indo-Pacific. And we are very much looking forward to that. Great, Kono-san, you know, one of the reasons why Americans are so skeptical about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP and multilateral trade deals overall is because of after China was welcomed into the World Trade Organization, even before that with most favored nation, a, a, lot, of, a lot of portions of, of America's economy 
uh, we're left behind. Uh, we're left behind based on these transitions in the global economy. So I, I think you know I think you're right that it is more important than ever you know that we work together because if we're together, it's very hard for the Chinese Communist Party to continue its campaign of economic aggression and unfair trade and economic practices. And and you, know, I'm, I'm concerned in particular about some areas such as data standards and mm-hmm. communications infrastructure. This is really China's effort to control control data flows in the world associated with fifth generation technology. You mentioned trading debt for equity and taking over a port in Sri Lanka, which has been replicated in other places. For example, Chinese companies actually run both sides of the Panama Canal these days. So I think the ambition is very large for the Chinese Communist Party. It's really, I think, to dominate the global logistics system and global communications in such a way that we're at a disadvantage, which I think highlights, as you're alluding to, that we have to work together, the United States, Japan, the European Union, because if we're all together, India and others join, then it's very hard for the party to play us against each other uh, and to continue these forms of economic aggression. Could you share some of your, maybe some of your priorities now that now you have an economic portfolio again, uh, and, and where do you think the biggest areas for the United States and Japan and others to work together on the economic front? Yep. Um, as we fight against the COVID-19, well, China was trying to promote the way they rule the people. The authoritarian regime may be quick to react, so maybe it is better system than the democracy. I don't agree with it. Democracy may take some time at the beginning, but uh, it's more flexible. And uh, if people support uh, government through uh, democracy, uh, we can move much more efficient and effective. And uh, we see that we have relied too much on uh, China for essential uh, product like mask, uh, PE, and other things. So we really need to think about our global supply chain. Supply chain. Um, we need to really consider uh, if the supply chain is resilient or in case of uh, COVID-19 or in case of other emergency or contingency, is our supply chain resilient enough? And if not, I think we need to modify WTO rules so can so we can bring some production back to our own country. Also, uh, technology is going to be very important. It used to be like internet or GPS. The military technology spill over to uh, uh, the you know the private sector, but now the technology that developed and used in the private sector could be applied to the military technology. There are many uh, of that. So how we can work together with other like-minded democratic country to promote uh, technology so that we can be uh, stronger uh, both ways? I think it's very important. And uh, also data is important. I think in 21st century, 
a lot of people saying that dollar is a new petroleum for the economy. Yes, it's true. You have more data, you know more about it. So it is important, US, Japan, Australia, and India with huge population uh, could get together and invite other like-minded country, Europe, and we can share data, we can analyze them together, we can come up with a new method to analyze the data. And our economy will be built on that. So uh, it is quite important that we need to work together. No country could walk alone in 21st century. Well, I, I, I'm so glad you're in the position you're in to, to, to help lead this now. I think you're absolutely right. This is such a critical competition. And, and there were elements of the TPP that still exist on data and, and, and mm -hmm. in these areas, mm -hmm. it could be applied more broadly. So I think much of the work is, is already done. It's done also in large measure, I think, in the bilateral trade agreement that we concluded last year, which I thought was a, a great a great accomplishment for, for both countries. So, so I, I really appreciate your vision there. I think there are these new forms of competition and and the stakes are very high. <laughs> and and it's sort of, it's an unprecedented competition because during the Cold War, our economies were never intertwined the way that they right. the way that they are now, and and so so I, I think that you know we should celebrate when the right person's in the right job at the right time. I think that's the case with you with you for sure to provide that vision at this critical time. You you know, Minister, I'd, I'd love I'd love to talk with you too about about another problem that that you're very close to it as well, and that's the uh, that's the that's one of the I think the greatest threats not only to Northeast Asia but but also to the world, and that's a North Korean regime in possession of the most destructive weapons on earth. Mm -hmm. Of course, mm -hmm. uh, North Korea is a, it's a gulag state that is it's tortured not only its its own people but kidnapped, abducted Japanese citizens. Uh, it's imprisoned and and murdered Amer Americans as well. We've witnessed what appears just in this parade recently this this new missile and the parade commemorating the 75th anniversary of the of the North Korean Workers Party. What is in reality, of course the world's only hereditary uh, communist mm -hmm. leadership. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and I'm sure you saw Kim Jong-un shedding cheer, tears during his speech and what seems to be an attempt to try to deflect blame for this regime that is spending all this money, you know, on, on missiles and, and, and the most destructive weapons on earth and building palaces and erecting monuments to himself across the country while his people remain largely destitute. Right. So, so it's it's a very dangerous place. Obviously, I think it's it's hard to to overstate uh, the threat with this kind of regime, you know, having nuclear weapons and delivery capabilities. And, and so I, I thought I'd, I'd ask just ask you to to assess really how do you think we're doing? We we work so well together in the development of this this strategy of maximum pressure under the thesis that we could convince Kim Jong Un that he's safer without those weapons than he is with them. How do you see the threat now? How do you see our response? What more do we need to do? Yes, um, North Korea has achieved uh, more and more missile technologies. Now their missiles have longer range. It could reach Guam, Hawaii, or maybe possibly the mainland United States. And uh, it has achieved some nuclear capability. 
And uh, we don't know really what's really happening in North Korea. So it's quite dangerous to the global system. Well, we are, we are supposed to be putting economic sanction on North Korea so that they won't be able to put more money into their missile and the nuclear programs. But I think we are failing that. It's, uh, well, one, they are getting uh, petroleum and some petroleum-related product uh, through ships-to-ship transfer. And they are selling their coal and other natural resources also through ship-to-ship transfer. US, Japan, South Korea, Australia, Canada, other countries are trying to prevent this ship-to-ship transfer, but their ships, the North Korean ships, are moving closer close, and closer to Chinese territorial water. So we won't be able to stop that. So we need to work on China so that China will cooperate with us on putting pressure on North Korea. Right now, I I think there's a loophole and uh, North Korea must be getting some support from China. So we have failed to get China on board with us. Uh, I think we definitely need to talk to China. I, I think even for China, the increased capability of North Korea is not good if they have a nuclear weapons uh, it could be threat to china as well so we definitely need to create some kind of momentum uh, to work with china and put the stop on north korea and we also not quite sure the situation of covid19 in north korea and they have been hit by a couple of typhoons this year uh, I think their harvest last year was quite bad. And uh, we have reason to suspect the harvest this year may not be uh, good again. So they're going to be very uh, pressed for their economy. Uh, we need to show Kim Jong-un that if they choose the right, you know, if, they, if he makes the right decision, uh, they have natural resource. They have fairly big number of population. They can achieve economic development, but he's not making the right decisions so far. And it's always been a dynamic period of time when there's a change in leadership uh, in, in, in our countries. I think Kim Jong-un has, has repeated, or the Kim family has repeated this pattern of a, a big provocation, and then we rush to them to talk with them. They try to extort money big payoffs, release of sanctions just for the privilege of talking to them. And then we enter into these long drawn out negotiations that result in a weak agreement that they then break. And I think it's going to be very important for us to stay together, to, mm-hmm. to maintain our resolve, to keep to keep the sanctions in place uh, in, in, until there is this irreversible momentum toward denuclearization. Mm-hmm. We worked, we worked pretty hard, as I remember our time together and with, with Yachi-san, to mm-hmm. keep to keep the United States and South Korea and Japan together as a family, mm-hmm. so whenever there was a provocation, we wanted China as well as North Korea to see that provocation is driving us even closer together. 
I know that it's been a difficult time in Japan's South Korean relationship uh, in that relationship. And I just wondered if you might comment on that is what, what work are, are, are you and your colleagues and, and Suga-san doing on the South Korea relationship? And how do you see the prospects? I, I hope I, I, for one, I would love to see them get better. Mm -hmm. Well, South Korea is our important partner and uh, we should uh well, improve our relationship. When I was a uh, foreign minister, uh, at the beginning of my term, uh, Foreign Minister Khan of uh, South Korea and I worked together, created, uh, set up a task force so that we can uh, make this bilateral rela relationship to the next level. And uh, we've been doing very good until this uh, Supreme Court decision in South Korea came up, uh, which was against the 1965 treaty between Japan and the Republic of Korea. That is a legal base, legal foundation of our bilateral relationship. So I, I really hope that this uh, ROK government uh, try not to violate 1965 treaty. Uh, I think if you if you talk to the younger generation in Japan and the South Korea, uh, I think they love uh, culture of the other country. I mean, K-pop and uh, you know the movies are very uh, popular in Japan, and uh, we have so many uh, young Korean people coming to Japan to taste the Japanese restaurant, go to Hokkaido, go to Okinawa, play golf in Japan. So if you talk to the younger generation, I mean, they really uh, wanted to uh, create a better relationship between two countries. So this uh, Supreme Court decision is uh, or, you know, just on in the way. And uh, I really hope this, uh, uh, South Korean government uh, could do something so that it will not violate the 1965 treaty. I, I hope so too. And it does, I think that it does have a big impact on, on how China sees the region and sees mm -hmm. the, the problem associated mm -hmm. with North Korea. You know, I think we have a North Korea strategy, we being the United States, Japan, and South Korea. China seems to have a U.S. strategy, which means <laughs> they, they want to divide all of us, right? And mm. as the first step of maybe driving the United States away, uh, so it can isolate Japan. You know, it's 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 our greatest rival in, in the region. So I, I think it's it's so important for us to stay together. And and thanks for your leadership on on that issue. And and uh, I'll be hoping that that, uh, that that we hit bottom a while ago in the in the South Korean uh, Japan relationship. You know, I, I, there are so many other issues to talk with you about, uh, but I, I wondered if, if uh, for the last question, I just might ask you an open-ended one. And, you know, you know, in the United States, uh, there is these days this deep skepticism of internationalism, you know, and, and an international approach to, to problems. But, but of course, we, we've learned from COVID-19, if you don't cope with problems abroad, you, you have to deal with them at a very high price once they reach your, your shores. And, and other issues fall into this category as well, issues of energy security and, and the environment and, and, and climate change. And so I just I wondered if you might just take a moment to explain to our viewers 
ex explain to American citizens how important the U.S.-Japan relationship is to really our, all of our security, and uh, and what is your vision for how it should evolve, and and uh, what more can we we can do together? I mean, you've had you've had the portfolio as foreign minister, you've had it during a period of significant change in in, in the self-defense forces as uh, as minister of defense as well. So I I just like to give you the the platform here to talk to our viewers about our alliance and 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 what your vision is for it. Well, I'm really worried about what happens after COVID-19. The I think the uh international uh society is sort of being divided into democracy and uh, authoritarian regime. Uh you know, democracy, free society, and the authoritarian regime was sort of Orwellian society. The government is watching over you. And uh, we need to maintain this liberal international order that made the global economy so prosperous after the World War II. In order to uh, keep the liberal international order after COVID-19, I think US, Japan, Europe, Canada, Australia, and you know, the like-minded country need to get together. And we need to uh, pull uh, countries that trying to become democracy, but are not yet, uh, you know, uh, other, you know, uh, some Asian countries like Myanmar, with Aung San Suu Kyi, the Myanmar started to walk towards democracy. It will take some time, but uh, I think Myanmar people wanted to achieve the goal in the future. Uh, you know, there are a lot of countries like that, and we need to help them become democracy. But uh, they have economic relationship with China, and. China always try to talk to them, well, authoritarian regime can make quick decision. It may be better to develop the society, develop the economy. And uh, we, we have to work together to give uh, developing countries some help. So one day they will become democracy. They will become capitalist country. Uh, they, they are going to be the free society. So it's important for United States to maintain relationship uh, with Indo-Pacific countries. And Japan could be a very uh, good partner for US in this region. And I think we have become an uh, important partner in this region. So together with other like-minded country, uh, we will work together to make the global uh, democracy and uh, market economy and a free society. I think that's the goal we share. And no, no country can walk alone. We have to share technology. We have to share data. We have to share the value. We have to share the vision. So US-Japan uh, alliance is probably the most important uh, partnership as uh, former Senator Mike Mansfield once said. Well, Kono-san, I, I agree with you. Thank you for, for that 
that's just strong description and strong case for for the U.S. Japan relationship. And, and Mr. Kono, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, thank you for helping us learn more about a battleground important to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.